Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. A festival is work. It's work to become part of a community. It's work to have a mission. It's a concept of, of establishing integrity in what you're doing. That was George Ween, legendary founder of the Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals, from our 2015 interview with him for one of our very first episodes. George passed away peacefully at the age of 95 in September. George was many things. He was a talented pianist, philanthropist, art and wine collector, champion of social justice, and author, among many other interests and accomplishments. It's been said that everything from Woodstock to jazz at Lincoln Center to Coachella might have happened differently, if at all, and that George could justifiably claim to have invented, developed, and codified the contemporary popular music festival. For this episode, we wanted to revisit his legacy and honor his memory by speaking with some of his friends and colleagues, whether they knew him for decades or just a handful of blessed years. As it turns out, the indelible mark George made was not just artistic and professional, but also, for many, personal. My parents' first date was to see Sarah Vaughn at Storyville, George's Boston nightclub, in 1955, the year after Newport socialites Lewis and Elaine Lorillard urged him to organize a festival in their gilded resort community in Rhode Island. I first met George during the heyday of his JVC Jazz Festival. Years later, George became a family friend. I eventually joined the board of the Newport Festivals Foundation, which will ensure that the Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals will outlast us all. We spoke with the people who knew George best, his friends and colleagues involved in the festivals, United States Commerce Secretary and former Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo, and Grammy Award-winning bassist and composer Christian McBride, whom George appointed as his successor as artistic director of the Newport Jazz Festival. The first time I met George was in 1988. He came to Philadelphia for a press conference. There used to be a festival that he booked called the Mellon Jazz Festival. It was in both Philly and Pittsburgh. And Dizzy Gillespie was named the featured artist of the 1988 Mellon Jazz Festival. And so I got called to play at the press conference. So I got to meet George. I got to meet Dizzy. Yeah, after that moment, I saw him again. This time, he actually had a real hang at uh, Wynton Marcellus's apartment. And we played together. And, you and uh, George. Me, me, George, and Wynton. You were still a pretty young guy then. Oh, yeah. It was scary. I mean, I knew Wynton well already, but I mean, I was still only, you know, maybe 17. And uh, I was a student at Juilliard by then. And I was just trying my best to work my way into the jazz world because I knew that's what I really wanted to do. I didn't even know George was a pianist at that time. I knew him as the world-famous promoter and producer, but I didn't know he played piano, so that was a pleasant surprise. What did it mean for a young jazz artist to get a Newport booking for the first time? I think it meant the same thing then as it does now. You know, the Newport Jazz Festival is the most storied festival in the world. There are a lot of festivals that are probably 10 times the size, uh, but they don't carry the lure, the history, the legacy like Newport does. I mean, George really did set the template for every 
single festival in the world, and not just jazz festivals, folk festivals, pop festivals, rock festivals. You want to know how to start a, a music festival, you got to look at the first page, and the first page was written by George Ween. You know, I, I remember saying that at a meeting once, and George was like, yeah, but we're different than all of them. I said, well, yeah, but yeah. you all, you were also the first one. Of course, yeah, he knew how important he was, and he knew what he'd started. To get a, a booking at the Newport Jazz Festival, that meant you have credibility. You can stay around now. I've heard that you were George's hand-picked successor as artistic director of the Newport Jazz Festival. Yes. He made the phone call himself <laughs> and said, I want to talk to you. You know, I've been doing some uh, snooping around. <laughs> and at the time of this phone call, he was 89. And he says, as I approach my 90s, I realize that we don't have a successor plan for me at Newport. And he was like, you know, how can you be 89 years old and not have a successor plan? That's ridiculous. You know? <laughs> so I talked to our board chair. I spoke to our executive director. I've talked to a bunch of other people. And I want you to be the guy that runs with the torch. You were the only choice, as I understand. That's even more humbling. Um, I was pretty shocked when George made the personal call and said, hey, I want to talk to you about something important. I didn't realize that, you know, all that snooping around that he said he was doing was, you know, he said, I've been paying attention to all of the stuff that you're doing, and I like the way you think. I like how your career has unfolded. You know what this festival means to me. You know what this festival means to the jazz community. You know what this festival means to the world at large. I trust you with it. That's pretty heavy. Our friend Michael Dorff is founder of City Winery. Michael wrote, George Ween started in my life as a Goliath competitor who produced the JVC Jazz Festivals worldwide. The storied Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals, New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, and many others when I arrived in NYC in 1986. I showed up as a 20-something punk at his own press conference filled with jazz royalty and the global media establishment to distribute flyers to my startup What is Jazz Festival. But rather than squash me like a bug and have security thrown me out, he embraced me. It was both strategic and loving. Rather than run me out of town, he mentored me as a competitor, as he did his many young, aspiring producers who worked with him and who've gone on to create music around the globe. Michael emphasized the generosity and guidance he received from George in the beginning of his own esteemed career. I didn't have a mentor in the music industry as a promoter ever. I never got a chance to learn from a Bill Graham. George was there. He was accessible. He really wanted to teach and to talk and to explain how the business worked. Bruce Gordon, now chairman of the Newport Festivals Foundation, was a close friend and confidant of George. Obviously, he was a brilliant producer, a distinguished career, a Grammy Award winner. We all know all of that. But in the past 18 months, he and I spent a lot more time talking about each other and our experiences. And I think one of the things that may not go down as one of the major 
elements of George's story career was his <clears throat> commitment to civil rights and social justice, his and Joyce's commitment. George had a, a real awareness, a real sense of you know, the social dynamic. He had a real and genuine interest in diversity before that term was used. He was an inclusive guy because he worked with so many jazz artists. He was in constant contact with African-Americans and was learning to better understand their experience, not just as artists, but as black men and women in America. And I think that history will probably understate just how committed he was to inclusion. I think it really reflected in the festivals and how he produced them and the fact that he gave a lot of talented African-American musicians an opportunity to perform in venues and in ways that they had previously not been welcomed. So he was not just making a musical production statement. He was making a statement about the importance of presenting this art form and presenting these artists in venues and ways that they otherwise might not have had the opportunity to do. These discussions were taking place uh, during the summer of what I'll call the summer of George Floyd. And so he and I were talking about what we were seeing happening and unfold in the country and around the world. And his deep passion and his concern and his worry for where this nation was moving was uh, palpable. It really mattered to him in ways that I think uh, the average person knowing him wouldn't appreciate. In your conversations over the last 18 months with George, did anything surprise you? George was a tough businessman. I used to tell George, you know, your organization is not the traditional institutional organization. Your organization looks like a solar system. You're the sun and everything just rotates around you. And everything that matters most, even the calculations for financials, so much of that is in your head and you know everything down to the penny. So he was a sharp, tough, scrutinizing businessman who ran a tight ship. But what really did surface was that despite he was all of those things, he treasured his team and the larger music community and family. And that he valued more than anything. So he might have had some tough moments with artists. He might have had uh, differences with people who had worked in his organization over time and maybe moved on to do other things or maybe even left in not the best of circumstances. Mm. But in his mind, they were all family. And what was most important to him were the relationships that he had with people. There was sort of an edge to George, and he could come off sometimes as a tough guy, but he wasn't. He really wasn't. He was a soft guy in his heart, and nothing was more important to him than family and friends. And that became crystal clear during the course of our discussions. And yes, it surprised me to see that those relationships outweighed the economics of running a business. Jay Sweet is executive producer of the festivals and executive director of the Newport Festivals Foundation. What advice had he given you that that has really stuck? Two things that, and it takes a very long time for it to actually be internalized. The first was I did well 
in the first decade of my career with him in a David versus Goliath mentality of we have to fight against all enemies. And I needed that underdog approach. It was the way to gnarl my teeth and carve out a niche. And then about a decade in, he said, you got to stop. I said, why? He's like, you're always worried about the competition. Why don't you just stop comparing what we do to anybody and just do our thing, regardless of what anybody else is doing, just do your own thing and stop worrying. I think it was tough for him to say that. Like, I think mm. we've gotten to a point where we've got to just not worry about our enemies. That was one. And, and then the other most important lesson he said to me was that he never put his, word, his, his name on a contract. Mm. It was a handshake. He said, if your handshake isn't worth more than a paper, you're probably not going to last long in this business and probably someone's going to buy you out. And there's always somebody who's going to force you to do something. But if you can shake hands and get deals done, you'll be fine. And I know that George's legacy, what I got to build upon, allows me to, when I say we're booked at that number, or I promise your band the slot, or we will show up on this thing to do this, I'm batting 99.5%. That is something that George said, even if we have to lose a considerable amount of money, if you told me you said it, we'll do it. No matter what it costs us, we will do that because he felt it was important. And what I'm trying to say is he backed up my name when sometimes I couldn't back up my own check that my mouth had written, even if he didn't want to, because he's, he understood that the, the long-term ROI of making sure that my word was good was actually going to help him and his legacy. Newport board member Jerry Chazen reflected on his friendship with George. What happened is, our uh, friendship really developed because we had so much in common. We were very close in age, and George's beginnings in jazz reminded me of my own beginnings. Many of the things that he did, I was doing, sneaking into clubs on 52nd Street and so on. George was two things. He was a man in the jazz business. And his whole thing is, can I sell enough tickets with this thing? Will I really be able to sell enough tickets? I remember one lunch we had while JVC was still the festival in New York City. And the big event of the festival was always a show at um, Carnegie Hall. And George and I having lunch, he says, I got a problem. He says, I don't have anybody who could fill up Carnegie Hall. I don't know what to do. And, you know, all the so-called old musicians at this point, it's not so many years ago, but the old musicians like Dizzy Gillespie and that whole crew were kind of gone. The year before, he had used uh, Tony Bennett as his Carnegie Hall thing. He didn't think he could do that again, and he didn't know who he'd be able to put in. So that was George the businessman. And he wanted to represent what was current in jazz, the new people, and so on. And of those new people, he wanted to get the ones who were best able to sell tickets. On the other hand, in terms of his personal musical taste, the one word I remember in the conversations that I had with George was melody. We both agreed if it doesn't have melody, who's going to grab it? 
Kira Favreau is Chief Operating Officer of the Newport Festival's Foundation. So George and I met, it was to be exact, January 2018. And while that was only barely four years ago, it does seem like I had the privilege of knowing him much longer than that. And we met under the circumstances of it being my sixth and final interview to join Newport Festival's foundation. George was my final seal of approval (laughs) to join the organization. And I remember it was a cold January day and I went to his apartment in New York. It was the afternoon and he was very welcoming. We ended up sitting in his living room. I think he looked at my resume for 30 seconds and asked me, could you do all these things for us? And I said, yes, gladly. And we ended up talking for an hour or two about the arts, about our Lithuanian heritage, about Boston University, where we both went to school. And it was quite a lovely, lovely day. And I'll never forget, I asked for a water when he asked me what I wanted to drink because it was three o'clock in the afternoon and I had just met him for the first time. And he, he had a Bailey's on the rocks and he said, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want one of these? And I remember saying, okay, George, I'll have one with you. (laughs) So that was our first meeting. And I have to say, it really felt like we had known each other for years. I have to say our interview was one of my favorite memories. And I think my second favorite memory was this summer. Most of us live on site in Newport for two to three weeks, depending on our roles. And the Monday after jazz ends is a very emotional day, especially this year, because we had nine straight show days practically. And it's a feeling of happiness, just so proud and exhausted. And I have a four-hour drive from Newport back to where I live in Saratoga Springs, New York. And it's a very reflective time. This year, right as I was an hour into the drive, George called me just to check in and he was so happy and so proud of the whole team. And it was really such a lovely memory. He was explaining how happy he was, how the events went off and he was just on cloud nine. And that really gave me a lot of peace, even though he wasn't able to physically be there this year. I know that he was there in spirit and just to get that blessing from him was very special. We connected with U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo, who, as former governor of Rhode Island, worked with George to secure the Newport Festival's permanent presence at Fort Adams State Park. I met George probably about 10 years ago at the Newport Folk Festival, and I just remember being immediately struck by his kindness. His brilliance was obvious. His commitment to music was obvious, but it was his kindness that will always stick with me. He had all the time in the world for me and for all of the younger musicians and performers. So that to me is a great part of his legacy. How would you describe his leadership style? Do you have any observations on how he worked with his own team or yours? I would say very purposeful and intentional. Uh, He and I worked together to bring music and jazz into public schools in Rhode Island. And there was a a good deal of red tape that we had to together cut through in order to enable that. It shouldn't have been that way. It was a challenge. 
And he was never discouraged, deliberate, purposeful, and persistent because he just felt strongly that kids deserved access to music. The other thing also, I would say, very joyful. What he did brought him joy. And I, I really fed off of that energy. Uh, do you have a favorite memory of uh, your time in working with George? A few years ago, I had arranged to make sure that the festivals would receive the uh, very long-term lease with Fort Adams. And we, it was a long process. George and I got on stage. We had a surprise guest appearance at the Folk Festival. And the crowd went wild to see George uh. on stage. And he and I together made the announcement that the festival would be there indefinitely, had a secure lease, and they went crazy. And then we said a few words, and in his classic, gracious way, he said, thank you to your beautiful governor, and leaned over and gave me a little peck on the cheek. And it was just so warm and kind and genuine. And uh, I'll remember him forever. His, his kindness, his generosity, his graciousness, and the impact that he made on Rhode Island. Rhode Island is better forever because of George Wien. George Wien's legacy is... George Wien's legacy is a combination of things. Not only is it the music festival, but it is also a legacy of deeply caring about art and the people that make it. Providing a safe space for artists past, present, and hopefully future. Providing them a safe place to come and practice their art. I think his legacy is really the lives of the musicians that he has worked with over all of these years. George paid him. He hired them and helped them make a living. And I think he'd be happy with that kind of legacy. George Lane's legacy is enduring. And a hundred years from now, we will still be talking about the impact that he made on the jazz industry, folk, and the festivals will still be breathing life into Newport and the Rhode Island community. Newport was the first major festival to return to production in front of a live audience this year after the pandemic forced cancellation in 2020. Two days before the festivals returned, George posted on social media, at my age of 95, making the trip will be too difficult for me. I'm heartbroken to miss seeing all my friends but with a new team in place to run both festivals, I can see that my legacy is in good hands. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. With many thanks to our guests, Christian McBride, Michael Dorf, Bruce Gordon, Jay Sweet, Jerry Chazen, Kira Favreau, and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Technical and audio production this episode from Ankit Chug and Joseph Vela with additional assistance from Matthew Esposito, Jackie Paulino, Mari Barbieri, Brooke Daddio, Clayton Durant, Nishit Singh, and Ritvik Chardrakar. 
This episode of Musonomics is dedicated to the memory of George Ween, 1925 to 2021. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Stay safe and be well. Thank you.